have a question I'd like to ask, and uh, feel free to raise your hand on this one. How many of you guys have been to a church that had a, a strange tradition? Not as many people as I thought. First service was that way, too. I hope for you guys that rose your hands, you weren't thinking of Country Oaks. <laughs> One of the bummer parts about being a pastor, actually, is um, they don't get to visit other churches on Sunday mornings very often, which I would love to do just to get ideas and see how other churches do things. Um, I get four Sundays off a year. That's kind of the vacation time. Uh, and, and on those Sundays, I love visiting other churches, like I said, to, to kind of see um, how the church's traditions and uh, do things. But I can remember when I was uh, 11 or 12, I don't know, right around there, visiting my brother's church. And um, there's a sermon that obviously I still remember to this day, and there's not for all the hundreds or thousands of sermons that you go through, to have one that kind of sticks with you says a lot. Um, but in this sermon, this pastor, and, and this, this church is a solid church, uh, did something unusual. Um, he had three large items on the stage, and they were covered with sheets. And so was in the middle of the sermon, he was talking, he walked over and grabbed one of the sheets in and pulled off the sheet, and there was a guillotine underneath it, a full-size model of a guillotine. Which, if you don't know what that is, it's, it's a way of uh, uh, crucif- or not crucifying, um, uh, executing criminals that were used uh, mostly by the French. It was a gruesome way of, of killing someone. But I was thinking about it as he was giving the history, and I don't know the history of the, the um, guillotine at all. Um, but just kind of thinking through it, I'm guessing they made it as a way of, of killing quickly. Um, the second sheet he walked over to, he pulled off, and he had a full-size rec- uh, model that was made, obviously, for the sermon of an electric chair. And you, can, you can picture, like, okay, the guy's up here preaching, and now there's a guillotine and an electric chair behind him. And he gave information about electric chair. Again, I'm not a historian um, on the electric chair. I do know that, that a lot of times it, it ended in, a, in a, a gruesome killing that didn't work the way it was supposed to. Um, uh, of course, the third sheet he pulled off was a full-size cross. And the pastor took time to explain what the crucifixion was. He was trying to explain just exactly what, what the cross was meant for. Okay. And, and here's where the weird tradition comes in. This church and this pastor uh, believed, and the church itself, doesn't have any crosses anywhere. In, in the church, on the church. Um, to this day, if you dry, drove past the church, it looks more like apartment buildings. I didn't realize until I thought about it that really crosses identify churches as churches, and if you take away the cross, it kind of makes you wonder what it is, and, and this church looks like apartment buildings, and I was thinking about that, and, and I want us to think about this this morning, because if you're wearing a cross this morning, or as you see the cross up here on, on stage or on our church, you're wearing a symbol of death. The cross was one of the, the, the most inhumane, cruel ways of killing someone. 
It was pure torture, and it was meant to be pure torture. And the Romans, of course, were good at this. They would strip criminals naked to shame them and embarrass them even more so than hanging on a cross. They would nail their hands and feet to a wooden cross. They would nail right between the two bones in your wrists so, so it wouldn't rip through your hands. It was extremely painful. If you think about there's nerves in your ankles where the nail would go through and in your, in your hands and your wrists. You're resting on these nerves. But it didn't damage any vital organs. Meaning, unlike the guillotine, right, the cross, death came slowly. It would take days for, for many. People would eventually die of suffocation, which I'm sure most of us know. We've you know, heard of the cross and the explanation of the cross enough times that, that you would have nails in your hands and feet, that you would hang by those nails. And, and to take breaths, you had to pull up on those nails, on those nerves in your, in, your, in your feet and hands to take a breath because the position of just hanging there when gravity pulls you down, you can't breathe that way. That means death only came when cramping and fatigue got so bad that you couldn't push up anymore to take a breath. Like I said, some criminals, that took days for that to happen. And honestly, if the Romans were being merciful, they would break your legs. They would come up and break your knees so you would die of suffocation quicker because you couldn't push up to take a breath. Often after crucifixion, they would leave the bodies there, not burying them, but leave them up there to rot and be eaten by birds. Listen, Rome used the cross as a symbol. It was a warning. Don't mess with the Roman government. It's interesting, even in antiquity, it was considered a horrific act. Actually, it's really hard, I was reading on this, it's really hard to find descriptions of the cruci- of crucifixion. Um, even in the Gospels, there's not a clear description of the crucifixion. It's actually hard, like I said, to find a uh, description of it. It's not because it was rare. The Romans crucified many people, but it was just rarely talked about. It was too offensive it was, it was too cruel, it was too brutal. Cultured Gentiles, and let me remind you who we're talking about, Romans, right, that used to go to the gladiator events and watch horrific things of sport. Cultured Gentiles tried to ignore it. It was, it was too offensive to even, to even say the word. The word cross was, was a word you wouldn't say in this day and age. Listen, the cross was a symbol of death. I often wonder, as I was thinking through this, especially this week, what if you grab someone from antiquity, or the, the, from the first century, and you brought them into our culture, and they saw crosses as jewelry, as earrings, as tattooed on people, in churches, everywhere. What, what would they think? And if crucifixion wasn't bad enough, just the act itself, the 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 horrors. I want you to, to realize that the Son of God came to this earth to tabernacle with us, to, to tent with us, to be a part of us, and mankind nailed him to the cross. Cru- crucifixion of Christ. Listen, 
It's the greatest evil man has ever committed. Greater than any war, greater than any genocide, greater than any holocaust. Yet we wear crosses today. And we wear them as symbols of of grace, symbols of peace, symbols of hope and love. Why is that? Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 26. And I want to look at the crucifixion of Christ. That's where we're at this morning. And as you guys are turning there, sometimes historical narrative is hard to outline. One of the first things you do as you're studying a passage is try to outline it to make it understandable, really to try to get to where the author is trying to say. And and historical narrative sometimes can be a challenge uh, in doing that. And, And one of the ways I like to outline passages is really looking at the characters that are surrounding the event that's taking place. And so this morning I want to do that. There's six characters that I want to look at. And there's actually, as I was doing this and going through this, there is a number of characters. There's way more than six you can outline in this passage. But we're going to outline six characters this morning that surround the crucifixion of Christ. Six characters. Starting in verse 26 of chapter 23 of Luke, the first character I want to look at is Simon of Cyrene. Look at verse 26. It says this, and as they led him, that's Jesus, and as they led him away, let me just kind of get us caught up where we're at and remind you what's happened on this day. This is Friday. This is the day that Jesus was arrested. He was arrested early that morning or maybe Thursday night. Sometimes in the, in the early morning, Jesus was arrested and he was put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And the goal of the Sanhedrin is clear. They just want Jesus dead. They're trying to figure out a way that they could, they could get him killed. And they finally accuse him of blasphemy. And so they take Jesus after accusing him of blasphemy to the Roman government because the Sanhedrin and the Jewish nation didn't have the authority to kill someone. And we've been talking about this. They took him to the Romans because the Romans had that authority. So they took him to a second trial. second trial was in front of Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again. We went over this last week. Both Pilate and Herod found Jesus innocent. But they sent him to the cross anyways, and they sent him to the cross because of the pressure of the religious leaders and the pressure of the Jewish nation that was chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Therefore, Pilate gives him over to the religious leaders to have the Roman soldiers crucify him. Therefore, the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers led him away. And they seized one, Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Typically, part of the humiliation of the cross was to have the criminal carry his own cross that he was going to be crucified on. These crosses could be up to 100 pounds. Some of them were lighter. But often, and this is likely in Jesus' case, the pre-crucifixion beating was so bad, there was so much loss of blood, and it was just so horrific that the criminal couldn't physically carry the cross anymore. So the Roman soldier in verse 26 seized, or the Greek word could be forced, at random, a man named Simon to carry Jesus' cross. It's actually in Scripture not much said about Simon. Of course, he's from Cyrene, which is uh, today uh, Libya. 
um, in North Africa. But Mark adds something interesting as he describes this. Um, he adds something that the other synoptic gospels don't add, and this is a Mark, uh, don't turn there, but Mark fifteen twenty one. it just says this. Let me read it real uh, quickly. And they, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of um, Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. It's interesting. I mean, why mention his kids' names? Well, the Gospel of Mark, if, you, if you've studied the Gospel of Mark and the, the uh, context behind it, was probably a gospel to the Gentiles that, that were written, Mark writ the gospels and sent it to Rome. So the Gentiles in Rome and the church in Rome. Well, Paul says something very interesting in his letter to the, the, to the church in Rome. This is many years after uh, Jesus' crucifixion. He writes in Romans sixteen thirteen again, this is for the Roman church to read, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So many theologians guess that Simon may have became a Christian, and Simon's wife and son befriended, befriended Paul, ended up in Rome, and that's why Paul, or Mark, when he wrote the Gospel of Mark, mentions his name, because he knew the church would recognize that name, and they know who Rufus is. We also learn in Acts 11 that the church in Cyrene, that's where Simon is from, grew after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ in, in Acts, grew to be a very strong church. Such a strong church that they actually sent out missionaries. One of the places they sent out missionaries is Antioch. So Simon, this is just a guess, but I, I think this is pretty, a good guess, an educated guess, could have, could have had a big role in starting that church. All this to say, it, it, what seems random, a man pulled out of the crowd carrying to carry Jesus' cross, was all within God's plan to spread the gospel throughout the nations. Which leads us to our second character I want to look at, and it's a group of people. This is the, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Look at verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people. This is the Jewish people in Jerusalem, which you kind of get a sense throughout this whole week, I, I hope you guys have seen this, that they're confused and disappointed. Kind of like the disciples, right? Peter and the disciples that were confused and disappointed about Jesus. They were hoping that Jesus would be a political leader, a warrior king that would overthrow the Romans. But when Jesus proved not to be that, they turned on him. They joined the religious leaders. They started demanding crucifixion. Look at verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamentating uh, for him. Right? It's clear in this passage that this isn't uh, these women that are mourning for Jesus aren't uh, Jesus' mom or, or the female disciples of Jesus, like any Mary. There's like four of them in the Gospels. I'm sure there was Mary's in this group, but not the Marys talked about in the Gospels. Most commentator, er, commentators believe this was either one of two groups. The first, professional mourners. In this day and age, uh, people would get paid to mourn for the dead. They paid people to mourn for 
um, those after they died, and we see this throughout the Gospels. So it could have been them, professional mourners, or just pious women who mourn for anyone who would die the horrific death of, of being crucif- crucified. My guess, and this is a complete guess, is, is pious women. The only reason I, I think that is because I don't know who would pay for people to mourn for criminals. Um, I think it were just pious women that, that were mourning for those that would die this horrific death. As the nation was mocking, in other words, and demanding the death of Jesus, these women mourned for him. Probably in a very sympathetic way, too. Yet, as we'll learn in a second here, they weren't true followers. They weren't true followers. Listen, I think it's interesting. I feel like the church is full of these, these types of people. People that are sympathetic to Christianity, even identify with Christianity, would call themselves Christians, even come to church off and on, or, but aren't true followers. They just come maybe because they grew up in the church and that's just what you do. Or the church is full of political conservatives and we line up politically so it's a place to find friends. Or I don't know how many times I've heard parents just say, hey, that's what you do when you have kids. You go to church and find themselves at the church. But for whatever reason, they come to church or identify as Christian or are sympathetic to Christianity. They're not true followers. I challenge you this morning to, to look at your heart and, and see if you fit into this. Because listen to what Jesus says to these women, right? Verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and for your children. In other words, don't weep for me. Weep for you. Why? Look at verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. In, in this culture, that statement would have been shocking. And this is a culture that, that having children were, was everything for a woman. Barren women were considered cursed, and we see this throughout Scripture, right? Jesus is saying, when judgment comes, blessed are the barren, the barren women are considered blessed when judgment comes. It's going to be that bad because, because they won't have to watch the, the horrific things that are going to happen to their, their kids and their families. Jesus is predicting what's going to happen in A.D. 70. Right? This is what Jesus says. Mourn for yourself of this coming judgment. Verse 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills, cover us. It's a similar language to the Olivet Discourse, which we went over a few months ago, I think. Jesus is warning Israel, and these women in particular, of the destruction and judgment that is coming. Again, that happened in AD 70. Within a generation of Jesus' crucifixion, Rome comes in and absolutely destroys Jerusalem and Israel. I believe Jesus here is moved by compassion and sympathy for these women. So in love, he warns them of the destruction that is coming. And look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's metaphorical language, of course. 
Jesus is saying, think, think, you think what Rome is doing to me is bad? I'm like a green piece of wood, and Rome's like a fire. And, and we know as Californians, when wood is green, it doesn't burn that good, right? He says, mourn for yourself, because Rome is coming, that fire is coming, and you, the, dry, or the nation, is like a dry piece of wood. And of course, we as Californians knows what happen, and knows what happens when fire hits dry fuel. Jesus is warning them of a horrific judgment. Again, when Rome comes in and completely destroys Israel in, in AD 70, destroying the temple and massacring. I mean, if you have a chance, the, the, the Bible doesn't talk about this besides predicting it. But Josephus and some historians around that day and age, it was a horrific event when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And they massacred women, children, men, bodies laying in the street. And hundreds, hundreds, they say one day 500 men at once were crucified. Jesus was warning these women. And this is interesting. Listen Listen to this. We, we learn in Acts, right? What happens in Acts? Most of the Christians before AD 70 in, in Jerusalem, what happened to them? They were persecuted, and, and, and what happened to them? They were spread out of Jerusalem. Meaning when, when that judgment came in, the followers of Christ were not in Jerusalem. Jesus was crying out to these women, follow me and escape judgment. And if you're here this morning and you're sympathetic to Christianity but you're not a true follower and you haven't put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross for you and you're not truly following him as Lord and Savior, Jesus is crying out to you too. Put your faith in him. Judgment is coming. Which leads me to my next character and this is, this is Jesus, the third character. Look at verse 32. Two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they, they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, right? these two criminals that were on the right and left of Jesus being crucified with him, were probably part of a band of revolutionaries, thieves, even murderers. We talked about this last week. Barabbas was probably the leader of this, this group. And we learn that Jesus took the place of Barabbas on the cross, which, of course, is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. Right? Two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. In verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As we've been going through this week, last week, or been going through this last week of Jesus, I've been mentioning you kind of just feel and and get a sense of the hatred that the religious leaders had for Jesus. Do you guys get get the feel, the sense of the compassion and love of Jesus? Father, forgive them, for for they know not what they do. What's happening in this moment? Look at verse 33. There they crucified him. And he cries out as they're crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
He's probably praying for the soldiers at this point. Unlike the religious leaders who knew exactly what they're doing, the soldiers had no idea. Right? They were just doing their job, and it was a horrific job. It was a sinful job, don't get me wrong. But they were doing what they were ordered to do. And as Jesus was getting crucified, he's thinking of them, and he prays to God for them. And they, this is the second part of verse 4, and they, the soldiers, cast lots to divide his garments. Right? This, of course, is a fulfillment of of Psalms 22, verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, think about Jesus at this point. Beaten up, I mean, barely alive, can barely walk or move, and with the little energy he has left, right, he compassionately warns these mourners, these women, and as the nails are getting getting driven into his hands and feet, he prays for those that are swinging the hammers. That's the Savior we follow. If you're having trouble following him as Lord, I don't don't know why. (laughs) He is a loving Lord. Which leads me to the fourth character, the religious leaders and soldiers. Look at verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saves others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Again, fulfillment of Psalms 22, verse 7 this time. And um, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is what they say in verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. In other words, it's obvious that Jesus trusts in the Lord. And they were saying, if he trusts in the Lord, why isn't God saving him? Of course, they were mocking. The soldiers say something very similar, verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In other words, if you are are God's Christ, God's anointed, save yourself. If you are God's Christ, God's anointed, why isn't God saving you? Which actually is an interesting question. Where is God the Father in all of this? What role did he play in, in the crucifixion? Which leads me to my fifth character, God the Father. When you read Luke 23, you might be asking a similar question. Where is God? Where is God in all of this? You may be even tempted to ask, why didn't God do something? Anything. Why didn't God stop this great evil? It's what the religious leaders are asking, right? Mocking, of course. They weren't genuinely asking, but they were asking in verse 35, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. If he's truly the Christ, if he's truly the, the son of God, if God truly loves this man, surely God will stop this. Surely God will save him. Where is God during this evil 
this grand sin, this atrocity, the greatest evil man has ever committed or witnessed. Where was God during the crucifixion? Another way of asking this, as I already did, is what was God's role or non-role in this horrific event? So I was contemplating and thinking about this question. I started reading, and, and I read a, a book by John Piper that answered this question, and I loved how he answered it. So let me just read what John Piper says. To answer a question like that, we should put our hands on our mouths and silence our philosophical spe- speculations. In other words, we should approach this question in all humility. When we talk about God's role or non-role in evil events, especially the crucifixion, Piper says our opinions don't count. All that count is, counts is what God himself has shown us in his word. And when it comes to the crucifixion, there's definitely one thing that's clear. Every detail was known about before the crucifixion. Let me give you some examples. Scripture showed that evil men would reject Jesus. Psalms 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We know the cornerstone is Christ. It was predicted before Christ even walked the face of this earth. Scripture showed that Jesus would be hated. John 15, 25, Jesus said, the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. In other words, the Old Testament must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's Psalms 35. Scripture showed that all the disciples would abandon Jesus. We talked about this already. Jesus quotes uh, Zechariah 13 by saying, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep um, of the flock will be scattered. It's found in Mark 14. Scripture even shows that Jesus would be pierced. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Zechariah 12, 10. So that when they looked upon him, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And the one I think is the most incredible one, this is Psalms twenty two sixteen. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. That was written a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. Last week we saw that scripture predicted that Jesus would be beaten to the point of disfigurement. Isaiah 52, 14 predicted that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. I mean, in other words, he didn't even look human after the beating. Even Jesus himself predicted down to the detail how he would be killed. Mark 10, uh, 33, we've gone over this, I don't know how many times, but Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. He's telling his disciples, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. That's the first trial. When they're done doing that, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, which is the Romans, for the second trial. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. To the detail of what would happen. God knew exactly what would happen to Jesus. He would be rejected. He would be hated, abandoned, betrayed, denied, condemned, spit upon, flogged, mocked, pierced, and finally killed. And God knew before it actually happened. On top of that, God clearly had the power to stop it. 
I mean, Jesus even knew this. And in Matthew 26, Jesus tells Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, to stop all of this. God knew what would happen to Jesus and God had the means to stop it. Therefore, God allowed this great evil. But the Bible takes it a step further. God didn't just allow the crucifixion to happen. And I know this is where people get uncomfortable. But I want to let Scripture speak for itself. Don't turn there, but in Mark 14, 27, we just went over this. Jesus tells the disciples, you will all fall away, right? He's quoting the Old Testament. And and Jesus says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13, 7, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Here's my question. Who is doing the striking? Yahweh. It's clear. It says, Awake, O sword. He's the one talking against my shepherd. Who is he striking? The shepherd. Zechariah 13, it says, the man who stands next to me. That's what the ESV says. The NASB says this, against the man, my associate. Whenever you see words that are so oft, it's because a word might have a large dynamic or range of meaning. This word throughout Scripture has been translated neighbor, near relative, companion. It literally means the man of my union or the man of my equal. God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my equal. This is a clear picture that God the Father is the one that is going to crush God the Son. His shepherd, his equal. But that gets confusing, right? Because you read Luke 23 starting with the trial of Jesus, and throughout this whole whole passage of Jesus' crucifixion, it seems like God isn't there. It doesn't seem like God's crushing Jesus, but anything, the Bible says Herod's the one that did it, right? Because he didn't, he didn't do anything, he just mocked Jesus. Or Pilate, right? He's the one that sent Jesus to the cross. Or the religious leaders that demanded crucifixion. Or the Jewish nation that chanted, crucify him, crucify him. Or the soldiers who were the ones that literally driven, dri- drove the nails through his hands and feet. If anything, God just seems absent. Passively allowing at best. Doesn't seem like he's actively striking the shepherd. Well, I want to take a moment, and and I want to be very careful here. We're treading on holy ground. John Piper, I, I love what he says. He says, we need to let Scripture speak for itself. So if you would, turn with me to Acts 4.24. Acts 4.24, the context here, just so you guys know, the disciples are together, the church is together, and they're praying. They're lifting up their voices, and they're praying for boldness. And I want to remind you who wrote Acts, right? Who, who wrote Acts, do you know? Luke, same person that wrote Luke 23, right? Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, Acts, written by Luke. And actually, these two books are meant to go together. A lot of theologians just call it Luke-Acts. Or Luke 1, Luke the sequel. Um, 
it, they're meant to go together. It's clear in the beginning of Acts. He's writing to the same person. He says, hey, the first book I wrote you, here's the second one. This is what it says about that, that time uh, when Jesus was crucified in this portion of Scripture. Verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Right off the bat, saying you, you are in control, God. Some of your Bibles might just have Lord. It's a different word for Lord that than's used throughout most of Scripture. And it, it really means master, someone that's in control. Sovereign Lord. That's why ESV adds sovereign. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, you have control of everything. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, I love this. If you know me, I, I love praying scripture, and, and it's exactly what they do. They take Psalms 2 and start praying it. Start praying Psalms 2, which says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rule and gather together against the Lord. And in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. And against his anointed, that's obviously Jesus. The kings, the governors, the nations are plotting against Jesus. This is obviously the trial and crucifixion. It's talking about Luke 23. Look what it says in in verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Right? They're in Jerusalem. So this is what they're talking about. They gathered together against the holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's your anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among, uh, along with the Gentiles and the, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's an amazing statement. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All the characters surrounding Jesus' death, Herod, Pilate, the Romans, the people of Israel, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Take a moment and let that sink in. This is what John Piper says. It's a strange way of speaking. To say that God's hand and plan have predestined something to happen. One does not ordinary think of God's hand predestining. How does a hand predestine? Here's what I think it means. The hand of God ordinarily stands for God's applied power. Not power in the abstract, but earthly, effective exhortation of power. The point of combining it with plan is to say that it is not just a theoretical plan. It is a plan that will be accomplished by God's own hand. Another way of saying this is, it was God's hand and plan that predestined both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to crucify Jesus. Does that mean Herod and Pilate and and Israel and the soldiers aren't responsible for their actions? No, they're responsible. (laughs) The Bible's clear. Turn to Acts 2.22 again. It says something similar. Acts 2, verse 22. Again, this is Luke writing. 
He's explaining what's going on in, in Acts 3 through, through the mouth of Peter this time. I love this. This is Peter preaching. This is Peter preaching to a, to a bunch of Jews that aren't saved. And Peter digs down deep theologically. This is what Peter says. Men of Israel, verse 22, Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, God made sure you know he was from God because he did all these miracles. Those miracles pointed to his authority. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan Again, the NASB uh, beep says the predetermined plan, which the word in Greek, that's a, an appropriate translation. Let me read it again that, uh, from the NASB. This Jesus delivered up according to the, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the tension? God is sovereign. The predetermined plan Man is responsible. You crucified and killed. The Bible clearly teaches these two things, that man is responsible. Hear me. Man is responsible for his action and choices. In other words, your choices matter. Yet God is sovereign even over man's choices. How can this be? The answer, I don't know. I don't know. That's the, that would be the same question asking, how can God be one and three? I, I don't know. The Bible clearly teaches he's one essence, three persons. How that, how that works, I don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, it's the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's a tension there we should not try to undo by philosophical guesses. We should put our hands over our mouth and let Scripture speak for itself. So maybe the better question is not how, but why. Why would God the Father do this? Why would God the Father crush his son? Have him crucified. Well, I want you to see this. Turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 2. You might be wondering, well, what's, where's the crucifixion in the Old Testament? Right here. The Jews should have known. Isaiah 54, verse 2. And it says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of, out of dry ground. This is... Uh, Obviously talking about Jesus in this passage. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus didn't, didn't come looking like a king. If we, were, we, we lived back in that day, day and age and, and Jesus just walked in front of us, you would just think he was a normal person. A lowly carpenter, a nobody, a born in a manger. His, his appearance, in other words, was nothing special. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and, and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And this is true throughout Jesus' life, but it's especially true the last week of Jesus' life. We've been spending so much time in this last week. It's true in Luke 23, a man of sorrows. But why? Why? Well, it's answered in verse 4. Look at this. Verse 4 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, he was cursed for our, or crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. In other words, we have all sinned. Therefore, the Lord Yahweh has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. In other words, God actively made Jesus pay the price of sin we owed so that we could have peace, so that we could be healed, so that we could be saved. The religious leaders, Pilate, Herod, they just wanted Jesus dead. They wanted to shut him up or they just wanted to save their careers. They committed the greatest evil and sin man has ever witnessed but at the same time, by God's hand and plan, God used this evil and sin to bring the greatest good man has ever witnessed. Man intended evil. God intended good. Listen, that's why you wear crosses today. Crosses today are symbols of grace, peace, hope, and love. Listen, man used the cross to torture, to kill, to murder the Son of God. God used the cross to save. Only God, it's amazing, only God could take a symbol as horrific as a cross and make it beautiful. It reminds me of a well-known verse in Genesis 50. 20, you don't have to turn there, listen. I, I know most of you probably know this. It's, it's Joseph talking to his brothers at the end of his life, and he says this, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. Listen, I believe that Joseph was a type of Christ. God ordained. What's that mean? God's hand and his plan was that he would be thrown into slavery. A great evil done by his brothers that they are responsible for. In other words, that their choices are they're responsible for. God sovereignly ordained that evil knowing that it would save lives. In fact, amazingly, it saved the very lives, the brothers that threw him into slavery. The same could be said about the crucifixion of Christ. You could reword Genesis 50, 20 to say man, right? The religious leaders, Herod, Pilate, man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, that many should be saved as they are today. Only God could take the worst sin that man has ever committed and use it to bring about the greatest good that man, that's ever happened for man. 
God was there. God was there, and he was actively working. The religious leaders asked, mocking Jesus, saying, He saves others, let him save himself. What's ironic about that, that statement? God could have easily saved Jesus, but if he did, mankind would be lost. Instead, God the Father crushed God the Son so that we could be saved. Which leads me to my last character. Turn back to Luke 23, verse 38. It's actually two characters. The two criminals. Which Matthew makes clear, they both started off mocking Jesus. Making fun of him, just like the religious leaders and the soldiers. But one of them had a change of heart. Look at verse 38. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews, verse 39. One of the criminals who were, were hanged, uh, hung railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This criminal is just mocking Jesus. And like I said, he joins in with the religious leaders and everyone else and says, Come on, man, you're the Christ. Save us. Save yourself. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him. I just want to picture this, too. Again, this is a guess, but it seems like a good guess that this was a band, right? Barabbas was a band of three. They're all getting crucified together, meaning this this criminal probably knew this criminal. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And look what the criminal says, verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, he's saying, we deserve the cross. But this man is innocent. And he said, verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's what John MacArthur says about these two men in this portion of Scripture. These two men illustrate the two options that face every person. There's really only two types of people in the world. There's two options this morning. Option one, those who, like the one who repented confessed with their, their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that Jesus was, that God raised him from the dead, those will be saved. Romans 10.9. On the other hand, option two, those like the unrepentant man reject Jesus and will face eternal judgment. John 3.18. So my question this morning as we close is, which one are you this morning? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you repented like the the criminal who says, that's me, that's what I deserve. I'm a sinner. Have you trusted in him, believing that he died for your sins and on the third day was raised and is Lord of Lords today? Or are you just sympathetic to Christianity? Are you here this morning because 
a friend brought you or because it's what families do. It's a question only you can answer. Don't leave this morning without putting your faith in, in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, it amazes me when I think about the cross, just a symbol of the cross, how the symbol of the cross is a beautiful thing, and I think it's appropriate that we put it on our churches and we, we put them up in, in the sanctuary, Lord. It, it shows us your love for us, Lord, and that you're just, that you won't just let sins off the hook, that you won't just forgive. You're a just God. Sins will be paid for. But you loved us so much, you sent your son to die on the cross, Lord. It's a beautiful reminder of your love and grace and goodness and peace. It's also a reminder of how horrid our sin is. The depths of ugliness the crucifixion is. When we wear a cross around our necks, we're wearing a symbol of, of, of Roman execution. It's a reminder of how bad and ugly our sin truly is, Lord. So I pray this morning for me, for anyone, Lord, that is struggling with sin, that we're reminded how ugly it is. That we do whatever it takes to run away from it, that we repent, Lord, and that we run to you. Because you are a good God, Lord, that loves us. And the proof of it is the cross. So be with us this morning, Lord. As Thanksgiving's come, Lord, I just pray that we are thankful for the cross, Lord. Thankful for what you've done for us and that we verbalize that to our family, especially if we're with non-Christian families, Lord, that, that we are bold in proclaiming the gospel in our thanksgiving for what you have done for us, Lord, on the cross. Give us boldness, Lord. As the disciples prayed, give us boldness, Lord. Knowing that you're in control, you could take the worst sin that's ever happened in mankind that we've ever witnessed and turn that for for our good lord we can trust you through through all types of things god give us boldness be with us lord this week in your son's name amen